Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family, and thanks for joining us again in our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Matthew. And with this episode, we're at our second-to-last episode in the Gospel of Matthew. In a way, I kind of have to say I'm sorry to say goodbye to Matthew, but it's been a great time together. And today we're in that final chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, And we're going to be talking about discipleship for Catholic youth. And we're going to be looking at the very last part of Matthew 28 with just two or three verses that are called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And remember, we have talked multiple times through our studies in the Gospel of Matthew about the emphasis on the kingship of Jesus, the Messiah. And when it says all authority, it means just that, all authority in heaven and on earth. Every knee is to bow and recognize Jesus Christ is Lord. Verse 19, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the close of the age. Now, in the Great Commission, after Jesus says all authority is given to me in heaven on earth, but therefore, as a result of that, it says, go and make disciples of all nations. And many Christians, um, like myself in the past, misunderstand the primary command in the Great Commission. Uh, I was under the, uh, the idea that the emphasis was going, and There is something within evangelical Protestantism and historical Protestantism, and there's nothing wrong with this, but it's the idea of go being the thought is the primary command. And that's not a bad thing, and I'll tell you one reason why. I use an illustration from trying to navigate a sailboat. In a sailboat, you steer with a rudder, and you have the tiller, which you put your hand on, and you steer But if the boat isn't moving, you can't steer. You have to get the boat moving. And sometimes it pays if you're in a sailboat to try to get a boat moving even in a direction you don't end up wanting to go to. But once you get the boat moving, then you can steer it. So, you know, wanting to have God guide your life and become a disciple of Jesus while you're sitting in your easy chair and never try anything – you might have a very difficult time finding divine guidance in your life. Well, I was go, go, go. I felt that the going part was the main part. And so when I was about to graduate from college, the second time I tried college, second time I did a little better in the first, actually I did a lot better the second time than I did the first time, there was a group, an evangelical group called Youth with a Mission, Uh, The president of the organization was a graduate of my college, 
and they had a big hospital boat. They would go around different parts of the Pacific Ocean up to the islands and provide medical care and evangelism. But there were these small islands that the ship was too large to get near. And so they had purchased a fairly decent-sized sailboat, and they were going to use a sailboat to go to these very, very remote islands out in the Pacific. Now, in my past, I had done a fair amount of sailboat ocean racing, and I just had gotten out of the Navy. I had experience at sea with the Navy, and I thought, boy, this this has my name all over it. So I was about – I was really ready to head out to the far Pacific. I forgot exactly what happened. I was trying to figure out in my memory. I can't remember. That didn't work out. So I end up going to seminary, getting newly married, and I don't think I mentioned this to my wife Karen's parents – But we went to Europe shortly after we were married, and one of the things we're investigating is an attempt to become missionaries in communist East Germany. We felt that uh, that might be a good idea. So it was go, go. But later, a little bit better understanding of what the Great Commission is, the go in the English text is not a verb. Jesus is not commanding going. He says, as you're going, in other words, as you're living your life, you're, you're trying to move with God, you're trying to be obedient, the command in the Great Commission isn't go, it's make disciples. That's the primary emphasis of his command. It's in the imperative verb, go make disciples. And so what we want to do is Christian discipleship. That's what Jesus is calling us to, and that involves teaching and learning Christianity as a total way of life. What the average American might think of as religion, as something, you know, you do on Sunday morning and something you might do for a little bit of time in the mornings for your devotional life, but then whole sections of life are divorced from that, like family life, work life, social life, business ethics, sports life. But to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be able to view all of life under the lordship of Jesus, the one who has all authority. So that means Christianity, yes, what we very narrowly defined as religion is included in that, but our families, our work, Our sports, our ethics, our entertainment, everything comes under that banner of Christian discipleship. Now, I grew up in a mainline Protestant church, and I did, I think, properly imagine that Christianity was important segment of life, but I didn't understand it as a total way of life. And this is what discipleship is. If Christ is Lord of all, then our discipleship needs to be trained in such a way that it embraces all of life. And after my young adult conversion, I began to see that Christianity wasn't just a segment of life, but it was something that dramatically affects every area of life. And so I started thinking through, now, how in the world is this going to work out in life, not outside um, or not just inside of a church building, but 
for all the rest. And one thing that just came up on my radar, I was a single man, but how does Christianity affect marriage? Now, this might sound um, rather primitive understanding of one in charge of the Family Life Center, but my thought at the time was I didn't see a whole lot of connection between Christianity and marriage. Yeah, I realized you got married in a church, but that was it. No, there's a connection. And why you get married in a church is because there's a, a vital connection between faith and family life, between faith and marriage life. And so as a single man, while I was going back to college, uh, I asked to attend uh, Christian marriage retreats. And unfortunately for me, uh, the teacher of the thing <laughs> pointed out the fact that we have a single man here with us tonight, embarrassed the living daylights out of me. But I was very interested to see how you connected marriage and Christianity. And this is just part of discipleship. It's a whole life deal. And in the Logos Verbum software, which I highly recommend, they have a resource called the Fact Book. And this is how the Fact Book defines discipleship. Discipleship is the process of devoting oneself to a teacher to learn from and become more like them. For the Christian, this refers to the process of learning the teachings of Jesus and following after his example. Discipleship not only involves the process of becoming a disciple, but of making other disciples through teaching and evangelism. Now, I'm coming to a point, and this is a very important point, and particularly for parents of school-age children or very young teens, listen very carefully. To make it as a faithful Christian in today's world, a teen requires discipleship. And without discipleship, there's a really high probability of a faith washout in the latter teens or the college years. And why is that? Okay, all of us are infected by the life around us, and it's not getting any better. And for better or worse, the life around us, but our culture, our media, everything, unless a young person is trained as a disciple, if their view of Christianity was like mine when I was a teen in a mainline Protestant church, it was just something you do Sunday morning and the rest of the week was, you know, it was your game. It wasn't anything to do with Jesus. A person is just not going to make it in, in that situation. In fact, I didn't make it back in the 60s. And here's the second point. We say, well, my, my teen goes to a youth group. Okay. I have been a full-time youth leader, and I can tell you that it's extremely difficult, whether you're a Protestant or a Catholic, very difficult for discipleship to take place in the typical church youth group. And why is that? Well, the youth minister is given the task of reaching and shepherding and trying to care for and evangelize all the youth in a particular parish or congregation. So youth groups feature fun, inspiration, pizza, and Pepsi, okay? And hopefully they'll connect with some of the young people to try to make a connection with uh, 
their faith, in other words, making the faith something that's theirs rather than something they do because their parents want them to. But it's a reality that a sizable number of teens in any youth group don't have any strong desire to mature in the faith. And so any youth group, by their definition, in the average church is going to have a very difficult time making disciples out of a mixed multitude. Now, I have a solution. I've actually done the solution, and it's not that difficult to do, provided you know what you're about. But I suggest, and this is no arm twisting, this isn't excluding anybody, but you simply want to establish a second youth group of an inner core. You notice Jesus had followers up to 500 and then a smaller group of 120, smaller group of 70, smaller group of 12, and even within the in the 12, he had three that were particularly close to him. Well, just have a second youth group within the wider youth group, like a funnel. You invite whoever wants to join. There's no exclusive membership here. And then that second youth group is a discipleship group. And it's not just showing up for the fun and the activities and the 10-minute devotional or whatever, but it requires a commitment. And um, you'd be surprised exactly who rises to commitment. It's up to God to really touch a heart, but a commitment to attending, obviously, to learning and for service. Because remember, in our definition of discipleship, it doesn't just involve becoming a disciple, but you actually are involved in helping other people become disciples. So that's that's what you want to do. It's your basic strategy. So it's a twofold groups. And I had a, a very large youth ministry that involved um, middle school, high school, college and career, and young adults. So on Wednesday nights, we had everybody together. And then on Friday nights, we divided that up. And even on Friday nights, we had some uh, teenagers who were from very troubled backgrounds, not their fault, but their parents and such. And we tried to identify those and have just some special uh, second touch for, for them. So that's step one. But step two is who does the discipling? Somebody asked me, like, what? Catholic school, should I send my kids to and this and that? You know, my answer wasn't, you know, who gets the most kids into Ivy League schools and all this kind of stuff. And because in today's world, if you just get smarter, you don't grow in your faith, you can become a worse person, actually. Um, But really look at the teachers. Look at the kind of Christian they are. Do you want your son or daughter to become like them, literally, because that's the whole process. Remember our definition of discipleship? It's devoting oneself to a teacher, to learn from them, and to become more like them. And so discipleship involves a teacher who is what you want your youth to become. You say, where do you get that? Well, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 16 St. Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Uh, Christianity involves words, okay? It does involve words, 
but it also involves a life example for others. And you catch it and you learn it, both. That's discipleship. And Philippians 4, 9, St. Paul again, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In other words, St. Paul on his apostolic mission was an example for the discipleship of the brand new Catholics living, living in Thessalonica. And then finally, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So form a discipleship group. It involves commitment, commitment to attend, to learn, and to serve. And make sure that if you're finding a, a, a scouting group, a camp setting, a retreat setting, uh, it's, it's the leadership are crucial in discipleship because you can't get further than the one leading those who are being discipled. Now, what would you do in a discipleship group? Well, I would recommend just right off the bat, step number one is learn the gospel of John, but in a special way. Uh, I had the opportunity a number of years back some of my children are just starting college or had teenage friends, so we got together for pizza, and we studied the Gospel of John. But throughout the study, I emphasized that this wasn't a self-enrichment course. This was a discipleship study in the Gospel of John, and what our purpose here in this study is to learn the Gospel of John so that we could teach it to others. So I would say something like, and when you're teaching chapter 3 of John chapter 3, this is how you can get it across type of thing. And so it's a preparation to teach others. And if you only want to just put religious information in a young person and don't have an outlet for helping others, then it becomes like the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea can collect the living waters coming down the Jordan, sanctified by the Son of God, being baptized by John the Baptist, but it hits the Dead Sea, and it's dead because there's no outlet. You need an outlet to teach. Number two, um, you need to learn apologetics. If you want them to stay Catholic, it's a good idea to have apologetics, apologetics for basic Christian beliefs like the existence of God and such. And in today's world, it starts with the first line of the creed, believing in a creator of heaven and earth. I would strongly recommend studying intelligent design uh, with the example of Stephen Meyer, and he has a DVD and an Amazon teachings on intelligent design. So the Gospel of John, learning apologetics, including intelligent design. And then number three, which is kind of, um, it's a new step, but cultural apologetics to young people, to teenagers, has become more important to them than what we would call our traditional apologetics in defending the faith. And the cultural apologetics would be something like a young person asks me, uh, how can we explain to our friends that homosexuality is wrong without 
unnecessarily offending them or thinking that we're a hater. That's a tough one. But that's exactly what's going on today. And cultural apologetics would be doing that. And I have a great example. Unfortunately, they're not Catholics. But there's an evangelical seminary not far from here in Charlotte, North Carolina, called the Southern Evangelical Seminary. By the way, it's the only Thomistic evangelical seminary in the world. But on the weekends, uh, there are students who are either getting master's level or Ph.D. level apologetics are sent out to meet on weekends with students at secular universities struggling with some of the concepts they're being taught. So in other words, they're not just learning high-level apologetics. They're sharing those apologetics with college students who are in the trenches. And by the way, there's a whole book published by Ignatius Press that described the conversions of both professors and students at that seminary becoming Catholics. Um, Very interesting. That's what happens when you're a Thomistic evangelical seminary. But you learn the cultural apologetics because those questions will come up. Then you, at the same time, uh, put the disciples to work. And you have to find ways for them to share their faith. And the scarier the situation, the better. For instance, I had a discipleship group within my youth group, and we formed uh, – it wasn't me because I don't have musical talent other than playing a CD or something. But uh, they would uh, come and we would go to prisons. We went federal, state, and local prisons, and they would sing and maybe give a brief testimony And I would gather them together before we'd go in, kind of around the corner of the building. I said, well, you know, if you need to straighten anything out with God, now would be a really good time because even though there are in that room people who are thieves and literally murderers and things like that and drug dealers, but they can sense if you're a phony. So get right with God. We'll give you a few minutes before we go in and then – I would have them actually share their faith in front of guys who have literally killed other people with their bare hands. And so that was great discipleship. I can't imagine doing that today, (laughs) but whatever. And one of the things that would be absolutely excellent is take your discipleship core and volunteer to other Catholic youth leaders in your area. Say, hey, we'll come and visit your youth group, and we have a whole a group or a small group of disciples who will share their personal testimonies about following Jesus with your youth group. I guarantee you'll get invitations galore, okay? Now, when you're going to disciple, it takes time. Uh, Sorry if I offend anybody for saying this, but thinking you're going to make a disciple of Jesus by having an overnight retreat before confirmation I I just find nearly insane. It just doesn't work that way. Discipleship takes time to become like another person following Jesus so that you follow Jesus like that person doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And that's why camps are so good. Longer retreats are so good. Service projects, even multiple day service projects, um, scouting um, and I'm not – I'm talking about trail life or fraternis, that type of scouting or uh, sports teams where you have a lot of contact uh, with your coach. It takes a while. This is on a secular level, but they did a survey, and it depends on the person's uh, 
temperament, actually. But how long does it take to form a new habit? Well, the shortest, they said, for uh, a certain person was 18 days, 18 days to form a new habit. And there's a lot of new habits you want to form as a disciple. The longest was 254 days. And, you know, one of the more difficult things is trying to make a young person into a discipleship of Christ who has a serious drug or alcohol or pornography addiction. And one of the best groups that I've worked with in the past is the evangelical group called Teen Challenge. And Teen Challenge, if you go to their website, they said this isn't a life tweak. This is a life transformation. And they basically describe their process, which is 12 months, as a discipleship process. And it says you can leave anytime you want. You don't have to stay 12 months, but 60 years of experience, and I'm quoting from their website, shows that recovery requires a minimum of a year to maximize your chances of long-term success. And George Bush, when he was a president, identified Teen Challenge as one of the most successful programs in America, reaching youth who have just gone into all kinds of trouble. And it's faith-based. It's 12 months because discipleship takes time. And if you're in a turbulent life situation to begin with, it's going to take even more time. So basically save your money from the commercial drug and rehab places that aren't faith-based and might be 30 days. It's not going to happen. You're going to just empty your bank account, okay? But you say, well, that's impossible to do. How are we going to do that as Catholics? Well, I'm going to tell you, I was a youth pastor. I had zero money for this, and we want to establish our own what we call the Covenant House and take young people in who had had a drug background, just got out of jail or some kind of traumatic uh, family background. And uh, we had no money, but we wanted to do this, have a residential treatment. People could come and live for a year. And so we established Covenant House. We were given a house to use. Uh, it was going to be developed near a hospital, but we had it for, I think, two or three years. Paint was donated to us. Furniture was donated to us. Food was donated to us. And um, we set it up. So it can be done. Somebody listening to this might want to become a disciple wherever you are. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 468 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.